Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress, and ideally, a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we're talking teamwork, and we're asking ourselves, how do we structure well-functioning teams as lawyers? I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, darling. Good morning. How are we you? We watched Miss Doubtfire <gasps> on the weekend. You did. Hello! It's a run by fruiting. <laughs> that's drive my by. favorite part of that movie. Drive by fruiting, but that's fine. Drive by fruiting, drive by fruiting. Okay, yeah. come on. I pulled that out of the archives. I have not thought of it since Doubtfire. The, you had no idea there was a Miss Doubtfire reference coming. No anybody, idea. I don't think anybody could predict that nowadays. Really? No. But yeah, good movie. That's a, that's one worth getting out of the archives. Is that on Netflix? I don't know. It was. I don't, I don't know how my wife found it. I think it was on cable. We. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. So you did get your cable person eventually yeah. to come. Not through the company that gave us the runaround, though. Anyway. Right. We Switched we used our consumer voice effectively. Good. For those of you that listened months and months ago when I was complaining about the local cable provider, which is always entertaining fodder for people, for you, the listener, who want to hear about my cable issues. <laughs> I'm glad they've been resolved. That's all. I am, I'm bucking the trend say. for millennials, though. We cord... What's the opposite of cutting? Cord inputted? Corded. I don't know. Recorded. Yeah. Anyway. Plugged in? We you plugged, plugged it in. in. Yes. Yeah, that's nice. a good way of putting it. Uh, oh. How are you? Any news? What's going on on the Darlene front? Um, just a good week. Really good week. Happy to be on this podcast. Lots of exciting stuff happening on, on Twitter this week in the world of lawyers, I thought. It was just an interesting week to follow uh, politics, law, you know, all that stuff. So we're going to, we've chosen as this week's topic teamwork, but there were really tons of things we could have chosen to talk, talk about this week, I thought. Yeah. Speaking of teamwork, so I as we talk about often, I play on this hockey team on Tuesdays. And on Tuesday night, we, not not willingly, but wound up in a fairly physical game against our opponents. Uh, I'm a bit tender. I think I might have, like, fractured a rib. What? I know. <laughs> I can, we just, can we just, like, pause for a moment? <laughs> like, this is recreational hockey, yes? You've had tripping. It's Awful. like... It's like yeah. you're in an episode of that movie. Um, gosh, as a Canadian, that's wrong that I don't know this. What's the name of that movie about hockey? Oh, oh uh, my God. Slap. slap uh, Slapstick. Slap, no. Shot. Slap shot. Slap shot. <laughs> slap shot. shot. Yeah, you're yeah. supposed to be like lawyering and coming up with good thoughts for podcasts. You're getting slashed in the ribs. Yeah, we're playing in the gritty streets of Hamilton. Right. So there's a – and we're all a bunch of – uh, mostly they're musicians and artists. So we're a bit, uh, a bit on, on the outside. So anyway, interesting that so the, the team had different approaches to dealing with this. I was a bit in the middle. Some people were very much trying to avoid the altercation. Some were embracing it. And then after the game, we literally <laughs> like an hour debriefed everybody's approach to try to figure out what the best way to deal with this sort of issue was. Oh my God. Some, th- some parts know. of your life need to not be stressful. Right. Well, this was well spirited. Fun. Yeah, okay. it was basically led by two very close friends. One who I've mentioned on the podcast before is is very peace and love, right. and the other one Tyler, is very much Tyler, the Tyler approach. Exactly. Yes. Good. And the other is uh, very much like I, if somebody does something wrong, I want to respond to it. And it was hilarious watching 
the conversation occur. Anyway, it was great. Open communication, people debriefing things, and, and that's a good thing for teams to do. So we're back on track here. Mike brings the segue on to today's topic. Good job. Here we Nicely go. Nicely done. Um, we're talking about teamwork. And why are we doing this, Darlene? There has just been a lot of focus um, for us lately as we're building out our own team at Interalia, obviously. Um, but also just I'm interested in the topic. When we look at law firms, we look at lawyers, we look at the individual lawyer. That's a big focus for us. But I'm starting to think, and I think we've noticed um, in reading some of the articles about this, that we share different viewpoints that might both be useful to people on this. Um, it, it's almost impossible in the world of law to only talk about single lawyers. Like you talk about your own personality, but then we all kind of do work as a team. It's pretty hard to work just totally solo in the world of law. Right. So um, we're trying to figure out how do we how do we better engage as teams? How do we build trust as teams? Um, do law firms build good team culture? That kind of thing. And we and we mentioned a few episodes ago, but you have the great example of, you know, should we, should lawyers learn from rock stars, basically? And what lessons can we draw on the way that long lasting, successful musical acts structure themselves uh, when it comes to being a team? Yeah. So I had referenced an article from the uh, Economist's sister publication, I guess, called 1843 is the magazine. I think it's called The Rocker's Guide to Management. Um, and they look at four different rock star styles of running their bands. And I think it's just relevant. We always try to t look outside the world of law on this podcast to just derive learnings from elsewhere. Um, obviously, I work in the music industry uh, part of the time, and I do see a lot of different approaches to running a band, which is running a business. And my my advice often is just, it's evolved over the years. I used to just say, if you're all writing songs together, just split equally so that you don't have to argue about it every time. So it would be the equivalent of deciding how you're going to divide up profits every single time you do a different project. And my view is the most successful bands over time have pretty much been equal on that front so that when they get in, they try to create something they don't have to worry about if they're going to get paid properly or if they're going to have to leave the studio and have a, a sit down like Mike's hockey team where they have to go through in detail why they should get 20% <laughs> instead of 10% or whatever. It's just so crazy making in my view. Um, however, the article points out that certain very, very significant bands have always split things equally. Like um, the article talks about Coldplay um, and REM, which are good examples. And I would add U2 to that, which is a prominent example of a band that has been around for a very long time and splits everything pretty equally. Um, the one, the one thing that I would, I noticed about this was that, you know, in law, if you take this approach and apply it to like a partnership model, most people I know who are partners at law firms have to have this annual partner meeting where they get together and kind of hash out what people's shares are going to be. I don't know if this is every law firm or just the ones that I happen to know partners at, um, but that sounds to me like something that is maybe destructive of some of the fibers of the team. Um, and it's I want to think about it and think about, you know, is it even possible to say at the end of the year what everyone's contribution was worth to the percentage point? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, it, inevitably, you know, you're creating a team structure that relies on this routinized conflict and that has you know 
some downsides inevitably to it. No matter, I think no matter how much people can talk about being a professional um, and, you know, treating these conversations as professional, it, there will always be uh, disagreements and, um, you know, feelings and that flow from, from these sort of conversations. So it's, you know, it'd be a very, you'd have to think quite intentionally about coming up with this sort of arrangement. It's, it's even outside of the, the uh, legal world, like in sports, uh, athletes have to deal with this often with the team where not only in negotiating contract um, when they're free agents, but when they're within the uh, control of the team, they often have to go to arbitration to figure out what they're going to make the next year. And you hear athletes increasingly come out uh, and talk about how, you know, this is evidence that the team doesn't believe in me, that we're not aligning on, mm. you know, where we're going. Ego. Yeah. And, and it hurts. And, it, and at minimum, it puts people who should be working collaboratively toward a common goal um, at odds with each other. Uh, and, and I think would come down to conversations that strike at the very core of what is your value? What are you delivering? You know, what's your worth? And those are, uh, you know, I would say difficult conversations to share. Like, I think everyone has their own idea of their personal worth. Um, one of the challenges of those meetings and of the you know, sports situation that you mentioned is that you have to advocate for yourself. Some people are better at that than others. You know, yeah. that's ideally all lawyers are equally capable of advocating for themselves, but I don't think that's the case. Um, and then the metric that you're valued by sometimes is a little fluid in our, in our profession. And I don't know, you know, I, looking at my own team, I think everyone brings something different and I think we're greater than the sum of our parts. Um, but I don't know that I could sit down and, you know, in a year, so for the last 12 months, value specifically people's contributions um, because the billable hour is not the whole story. My, my whole kind of looking at other models is just to say, you know, how do other people do it? Is there a better way? There must be a better way. I mean, the example in that, in that uh, article that I thought was most interesting, and maybe because I'm a long, very long-standing REM fan, um, but they're a band that was you know, pretty successful at sticking together for a very, very long time. And they split royalties equally. And then you know, they point out in the article that um, the drummer actually wrote what turned out to be one of their biggest hits. He says the biggest hit. I don't know. I haven't confirmed it for myself. But Everybody Hurts, he says, was their biggest hit written by the drummer. And that to me just kind of jumped out to say, how are we setting up the incentives too, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you value creating the conditions in which someone does their best work? Maybe not this year, but the year after, right? Like he's going to write that song at some point because of the support that he receives as a member of the band and um, the whole band saying like the drummer is just as important a member of this band as the lead singer. I don't know. It's, I always find music analogies helpful. You know, bands are one of the, everyone can relate. Everyone has followed their favorite band. Everyone knows a band that exploded in a blaze of glory, <laughs> thanks to massive egos um, and fights about money, right? Or drugs, actually. It's another one. <laughs> I don't know. That's for another podcast. Yeah. The drug podcast. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring out the structure you want to embrace will inform your business reality, right? Like it might be that you're fine with conflict and turnover, uh, you know, to make sure that you know, certain folks are consistently um, winning the day uh, when it comes to revenue. Or you, you might want to build it so that it is more REM-esque or Coldplay-esque where everybody, you know, we acknowledge that we're all in this together. And despite the fact that one person might be more successful in whatever uh, quarter, whatever year, you know, we're all going to be 
collaborative and try to set the stakes in a way that allows for you know open communication, uh, creativity, uh, leveraging each other's skills and abilities in in uh, you know individual ways without trying to fit people into a certain mold that you know really uh, focuses on uh, effectively just revenue. But they say you know there is sometimes a person at the top who is just the leader. They take on the risk of the decisions. They take on the stress. They are more compensated as a result. And the rest of the team kind of is okay with that. And maybe it wouldn't even work to have a collaborative team that's equally compensated with that type of leader. So I I think there's room for, you know, it it doesn't mean that any structure that's not split equally doesn't work, but it means that you kind of all on the team have to be a little bit just aware of what you're where you're not the best. So I I suppose what we're saying is when taking a look at your team, if you're doing a true step back evaluation, consider the structure against the individuals and what their goals are within that team. And perhaps it might be worth considering a new structure uh, or at least acknowledging the, um, the impediments that the structure is causing certain individuals. And that might help foster uh, greater fulfillment, uh, happiness, more trust, so on. I think so. And I think also, um, maybe you could speak a bit to the perspective of the associate. So that's, that's kind of the partner perspective when you're looking at divvying up the, uh, um, and I just from speaking to, I was referencing partners going through the partnership meeting. Do you have a take from sort of your contemporaries that are at firms or, um, a little bit more removed from the decision-making process? Like, how do they feel about the team? Do they feel they're part of a team? Do they have tips on how they could, yeah, the teams could be built? I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I've seen through, uh, you know, uh, friends and people that I've worked with who are, you know, senior associates, junior associate class, even students. I, I'm wondering if the structure that exists in most partner-based law firms is less likely to align with the new generation of lawyer. Um, Because I I don't know if becoming a partner is as important to newer lawyers as it was 20 years ago or before that against actually enjoying work and having the opportunity to fully engage in your personal life as well. And I've seen people make decisions when they you know, hit it literally like we're groomed and, and we're on the precipice of partnership. And right when that was about to occur, walk away um, and look for something different. Because um, ultimately, I, I suppose, you know, we're having these conversations on the podcast. I think people are having them more broadly, especially as, you know, I think everybody starts to consider their obligations, uh, both at work and at home uh, on a more equal basis, we, ha- we would hope. Um, the question is, is the money worth the loss of yourself a little bit? Um, so I think in terms of structuring a team, that's something really important to consider, at least from the, you know, um, from my perspective and the perspective of many people that I speak to fairly regularly that are still, uh, in the traditional firm model. Um, that's the first thing I'd say. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think it's also a factor, like when you're asking how they're feeling about the model or why they make a decision like that. I do think there's an assumption that 
we're all talking about splitting money and that's how this is going to go. I do. I think that's the operating assumption. Um, And I I think like when we set our goals and this is a little bit of a spoiler for the blog series that's that I just started. Look out. Oh, you hear it here first. Breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Compared to some of the other breaking news this week, this is like very low down. (laughs) On the spectrum, wow. Um, so what I'm looking at really is just, you know, I don't, for example, know, this might sound shocking, but I don't know what my billable hours were last year. I don't know. I don't care. I, I truly do not care. Mm-hmm. I do care what my income was. Um, I do care what my level of satisfaction in my life was. I do care you know, how much problematic stuff happened business model wise or interpersonally or, um, you know, where was my stress level and what could I do this year to change that? I mean, I look at all those kinds of things, but if somebody said to me, what was your billable hour target last year? I don't have one. And if they say, well, what did you bill as far as number of hours? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think that that's, sort of heretical in the world of law to not know because how do you value it? But like you can value it. I just think it's a matter of sort of, I don't know, changing things up a bit. I don't know that it's going to be the same answer for everybody, but it seems odd to me that we have one way of valuing. Also, I think it's a little, when you're thinking about teams and stuff like that, I think it's a little demotivating to kind of look at a number on a piece of paper that's supposed to represent what your contribution is. I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, are you, so are you looking at a person as an individual and are you looking to, you know, develop their greatest strengths and um, ensure that they're the most happy and fulfilled in their work? Or do you look at the individual as an output machine that basically do this, reach this amount of output and that's success for you? Um, and I would prefer to work in the first model I mentioned where actually I think that everybody would benefit more, um, instead of treating everybody effectively, you know, by, you know, you're in whatever call year. So your bills are at this, this rate or in whatever department, um, that is, that's not an individualized approach and, you know, across so many areas, science and others nowadays, we're realizing that. making individual approaches yields far greater results overall. Well, and you mentioned, as we were setting up for this, you said um, there were a couple of points about trust that were relevant here and building trust. I think, can we talk about those? Because part of what I think allows us to build something different that has some variables is that you have to kind of trust the people that you're getting into business with yeah, or in business with already. And I think, and I'm speaking from, from my, for myself as well. I think as lawyers, this is an area that we don't do as well in as others. Um, I think that we generally as a profession hold our work very close to us and um, do often, uh, we're not as good as, as asking for help or admitting, uh, you know, weakness uh, than other uh, professions uh, may be built to do. Um, and so I think that yeah, trust within a team is vital and teams where trust is fostered uh, succeed uh, at a higher clip and find ways to innovate and be creative. And, you know, obviously that's a focus uh, that we have uh, on this podcast as well. So 
um, just taking, a, you know, we always do some research before the show to try to bring value to you, the valued listener. Uh, and so uh, I, I did some reading. I thought one thing that was really helpful from a group uh, called CCL, you can see them at uh, ccl.org. Uh, and, and there's one publication they call Why Trust is Critical to Team Success leads with, I think, some really great, um, you know, they set it up really well. Uh, and I'll and I'll just uh, pull two quotes from their publication uh, for everybody's benefit. Um, they say today it's increasingly recognized an essential asset to break down silos, foster collaboration, deepen teamwork, and drive engagement, and manage the never-ending process of change is trust. And I, I, this is I love this that when there is trust, people align around a common purpose, take risks, think out the box, have each other's backs, and communicate openly and honestly. When trust is absent. People jockey for position, hoard information, play it safe, and talk about rather to one another. So that's you know obviously a lot to unpack there. But um, if if we are able to better develop teams where trust is you know one of the one of the focuses and one of the driving culture forces, we're way more likely to share information, get out of silos and actually work collaboratively instead of as individuals who occasionally reach out and say, I need you to work on this absent context, absent information, you know, absent a, a bunch of stuff that's vital to doing the work well. Well, and I think there's also this other layer and that we've talked about before, but it's kind of the, you're only as good as your last project kind of mentality within firms, whether that's true or it's a fear. I do think there's a, f for sure at the associate level, um, there is this fear fostered. Mm -hmm. I don't, again, I don't know what exactly creates it, but I do think that most associates would say, we feel that if we make a mistake or if we do a poor job on a particular project, that that will be the end for us or, you know, the knives will come out for us. Again, don't know how true that is. It's a feeling that people have. And I think in that feeling, if you feel that way, it's very hard to put your put yourself out there at all, but anything. Um, and also it doesn't build trust because if you always think that someone is, you're only as good as your last interaction with them, how can you trust them yeah. it, to do good things with your future? It's vital that, especially with newer calls, and if you do want to mm -hmm. treat them or, or, or students or people learning in a new area, even if they are well into their career, um, to build a team that embraces that fact and makes it safe for them to communicate ideas and to take risks and to potentially fail. Uh, you're going to have a, somebody who learns quicker, who you can rely on faster, and and you can then truly see, um, you know, the stuff they get and the stuff that they need coaching on instead of being skeptical of effectively every everything they work on. Or do they even need to be good at everything? Sure, that they work on. Like, isn't there room for specializing? I mean, I think that. Um, if you've got an associate that's particularly strong in that area, why not put them faster into doing that more of their time as opposed to the assumption being you got to do everything, you have to be really good at everything. You know, it would be good if instead of just saying like this associate, um, you know, is struggling and they need coaching. Yes, that's one part of it. But then also like, are do we create the avenues for people to just be even the business model to support them a little bit better, right? Like if someone really, for example, requires a lot of time to do a project, to feel good about it, that's that's not necessarily the end of the world. You just might want to adjust how you bill for that person's time. 
right? Like you just might want to say, this is, we're going to go on a flat rate, spend the time you want. Or do you channel them into the type of work that leverages that right. skill if and desire, yeah. right? Like some things do require perfect right. or near perfect work, right? There, there's The stakes are so high in certain places that you want that person on that file. Whereas you might find other folks who have, you know, a, a good gut, a, a good sense of things can move a bit quicker and maybe that they're better suited on other files files as well, right? So it's 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 trusting their capabilities and understanding what their skills and abilities are and then leveraging them and taking that more individualized approach. Yeah. So uh, what we're what we're taking away from today is we need to learn from from rock stars, potentially like Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and from the drummers, and because the in, drummer. the, in the article, there are a couple stories of the drummers setting very, uh, very clear boundaries around, um, you know, what they what their role is and not getting walked all over and um, not creating necessarily. Well, there's sort of conflict. I mean, one of the one of the stories is about a punch in the nose from the Rolling Stones drummer to Mick Jagger. So that that would classify. It, uh, it's so conflict. funny. Conflict to Mick Jagger brings up this uh, uh, story that, you know, the there's comedian John Mulaney, who's, you know, one of the hottest comedians on the on the uh, docket right now. He tells a story when he wrote an SNL. Uh, and this has become something we say, uh, me and my daughter say all the time, um, when they did the pitch meeting, when Mick, ja- Mick Jagger was a host, they would like go through all their ideas and Mick Jagger would listen. And if he didn't like it, he would go, no, not funny. Whoa. <laughs> not funny. And, and uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. How stressful for those poor writers. So he obviously maybe could. Uh, be a bit combative at times. But now me and my daughter say that all the time to each other. And it's uh, become a family catchphrase, mostly directed at me when I try to make bad jokes. Um, okay, so right. maybe learn more from the drummer than Mick. But uh, any passing thoughts before we take a break and go to our goods? No, let's go to goods. Okay, let's do it. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Inter Alia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. And we are back with our goods. Goods are things we want to promote and support. Darlene. So many goods. I think just since it's a musical episode, one good is seeing my children graduate from Rafi to more adult music. They are really into rock these days. And in preparation for the episode this morning, we were listening to R.E.M., the Out of Time album, and they really enjoyed it. And I thought that was pretty cool to see very at this point now well, i guess 30 years old that music and they they related to it so oh it was cool gosh, yeah um my good is a, a kind of a goody gripey i know we don't do gripes anymore but um so paul wells who's a well-known canadian journalist and does a lot of national uh political stuff uh, has announced that he's leaving twitter because he just can't deal with it anymore and i empathize with him um but as well um so many good things have happened on twitter especially in the legal community in Ontario mm-hmm. specifically lately. And it is just a melange of great and 
terrible, isn't it? Look at what you're doing to your brain when it's like all on the same page. It's like, here's a cute dog story. Here is a horrible, like, uh, you know, a really tough story about something terrible that's happening in the world. Here then is like your favorite band talking about this other thing. And your brain is just like bouncing all over from like these good to bad. And it's not only all so, uh, you know, under 140 characters or whatever the limit is now, but it's just so all over the place. And I think it's probably not good for us to, to put ourselves in that situation. So I like the platform. Uh, I'm still on it, but I get what Paul Wells is saying that like for him, it just doesn't work anymore. And I think that might make sense and become a thing I feel at a point in time. Well, I basically only use Twitter to uh, understand the lay of the land in the legal world and it's legal Twitter. So I wouldn't say that it's the legal world, it is legal Twitter. Um, but it is helpful in building connections in a way that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily have, particularly cross-border connections. Yeah. Um, it allows you to interact with people that you met at a conference in a, in a sort of way that you can follow their thoughts in an ongoing kind of daily small way. I think there are, I'm not on Twitter personally and I don't use Twitter as my newsfeed. So mm -hmm. maybe I, I, I totally agree with you for that because I'm not really into snark as we've talked about before. I just, I don't know, life's too short. Um, but I do find that there's a lot of stuff for business use on Twitter that I find helpful. And I, it's nice to see the conversation sometimes, right? Like sometimes it's a one-way uh, broadcast without a conversation and Twitter does allow a conversation, although yeah. sometimes there are annoying ones, but I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't get to me too much. I wouldn't say. Well, that's Facebook perhaps a good approach to take, but <laughs> I am just in the weeds on that thing. I need to start to minimalize, I suppose, my Twitter feed. That'll be an effort I make. I'll Marie Kondo my Twitter feed. We'll go that, we'll go that route. I like the idea <laughs> of Marie Kondoing your, your Twitter. Okay. Uh, well, lovely to chat as always. Got the wonderful and the lovely in. Yes. <laughs> did I say lovely? You did. I just did it. And I, I said wonderful it. for you earlier. So with like a tick, I can't avoid it now. Anyway, nice to shout. We are who we are, Arlene. We're being our authentic selves. We are. It's fine. Okay. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.